Good morning, my dear friends, and welcome to another episode of the Painting Pictures Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriel Roberts, coming to you from northern Vermont. Got a wonderful episode to share with you today, a conversation with my next of kin. Is that is that the what that term means? He's my brother. I don't know if he's my next of kin. I guess that comes into play when you die and they need to notify somebody. And he's certainly in there as my closest of kin. I mean, we're both, uh, you know, have the same parents. We're born within a couple years of each other. Anyway, he's on the podcast for, I think, the second or third time. And we made a stab at, at covering a lot of ground and getting sort of an overview of Miles's perspective. That's his name, Miles Roberts. And I think you'll I think you'll enjoy this. It's we we don't really get into too much detail about anything. My idea was to try and uh get a little bit of Miles's story and his life experience and how that has led him and then in turn really led me to have a different perspective on the world. And it's a perspective that is not for everybody, but I think it's one that a lot of people get to uh, through looking at things critically, questioning. And it's it's I don't want to say that this is like the truth that Miles has all the answers or that I have all the answers, yada 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 yada. But I think that there's a big hang up in our society around making certain connections. I think that. In general, we are hesitant to because we don't want to be called conspiracy theorists and we don't want to be ostracized from society. But um, what I think Miles does a good job of showing is that it's it's not really about conspiracy. It's really just about looking at things and realizing that history is not some series of completely isolated events. Um, there are common threads and interests that persist and it's only by looking at things completely isolated and unrelated to one another that you can maintain a worldview that doesn't involve conspiracies. That's just how it is, <laughs> I think. Anyhow, thanks for tuning in. Um, I have been working the past few days on a property owned by a very elderly gentleman. He's 94 years old. And he hired me to um, to repair some trim on this covered porch on his house. It's a very expensive, relatively new house. And the carpentry work is good in that the angles are all very crisp. The, the meetups of all this trim are very tight. The nailing patterns are consistent. It's really was a very uh, neatly done job. And I don't know how long ago it was done, maybe 20 years, something like that. Anyway, it's this covered porch, and there has been some water damage going on. And it, it's a flawed design. That's the moral of the story. The, the design didn't allow t for enough protection for the porch from water and snow and dripping and moisture and so what I thought was going to be a matter of uh, scraping off some paint 
and maybe replacing a couple pieces of trim that were rotten has turned into a complete rebuild of his porch because it turns out that the trim, which is on the outside of the framing members of the porch, there's a number of posts and then connecting sill pieces and it's like it's got screens above and below. Well, the, the trim being on the outside was actually able to dry out better than the framing on the inside, which is completely rotten. So as I started to pull off the trim, I basically realized that the trim was holding up the porch roof. So I had to build a temporary wall to support the porch roof so that I could pull off the trim and the completely disintegrated rotten framing inside of it. <laughs> and he came uh, his his helper one of his number number of helpers wheeled him out yesterday to have a little chat and uh he wanted to know how long it was going to take and i was like i i don't really know man <laughs> we're just getting into it i'm just removing all this junk and now i'm going to start putting it back together and i said i said you know a long estimate is like three weeks and he thought that was too long and um he said you know I, I want you to do a good job and not overlook anything but gosh that seems like a long time and you know i've got my my money to worry about and i was just trying to get across to him like dude your your coral is not with me i i have lots of people waiting for me i thought this was going to take me a couple days i've already had to contact other clients and let them know that i'm going to have to push back their dates because the jackass who built this or designed this actually uh, completely let you down and unfortunately I just couldn't quite get that like he just didn't quite grasp all of what was going on that the rot was extensive and that I was having to rebuild his entire porch and uh, he basically just felt like I was maybe milking this uh, job or something and the the guy manning the wheelchair knew what was going on and was smiling at me and like trying to be understanding but also trying to let his boss have this moment of you know interacting with the carpenter and uh, you know making his needs known and my colleague who set this job up is in touch with the client's son and the client's son has photos of what's going on and has said, you know, you just need to do what you need to do. So he gets it, but uh, <laughs> I feel it's just kind of a bummer that like I have to, seems like I'm going to have to just accept the fact that this guy has this impression and maybe that's his natural impression of dealing with tradespeople is that they need a firm hand or they're going to fleece you. And I happen to know that my hourly weight rate is very good for the the quality of work that I do. And I also happen to know that there are not like a hundred other carpenters standing around looking for something to do that, w that would jump all over this job if I were to give them a chance. Like he's very fortunate to have me there, but was I going to lecture the old man in the wheelchair? If I did, <laughs> it might've gone something like this. Hey, jackass I've got a I've got a dozen other people waiting for me right now you want me to just walk away right now why don't I do that why don't I just walk away right now leave your porch as it is 
this stupid porch, whatever architect you hired to design your house was a complete idiot and is probably from Arizona or California, never had to deal with snow. He bubble wrapped plastic bagged all the framing of this porch so it rotted completely out. It's not my fault that your porch has an idiotic design. Why don't you stop lecturing me and be grateful that I'm here? <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. What do you think? Should I have set him straight? No, of course not. No, of course. I smiled. And I said, thank you, Mr. Mazur. Yes, I completely understand. I'm going to do my best. And he's a friendly enough guy, and he just wanted to get that out there. And it's like, okay. So sometimes that's what you have to do, I think. I think sometimes you just have to let people think what they're going to think because you recognize that the it may be impossible to make them think differently. And ultimately, uh, I think he, I know, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he has plenty of money. And I know that my work is worth, you know, very much worth what he's going to be paying. And um, I know that I'm going to do a good job and his porch is going to be better off afterwards. And so I have to just sort of hang my hat on that. Oh, but it's frustrating. You know, it's frustrating. Really made me want to just grab onto one of the wheels of his chair and give it a big spin. <laughs> no, I didn't. He's a really sweet old guy. Anyhow... That's some of the stuff uh, I've been dealing with at work. Whatever. It's fine. Um, otherwise, I got a little heat stroke again the other day. Nice little reminder of that whole saga from like three years ago when I played soccer in 90% humidity and 85 degrees in the sunshine and cooked my little brain. Since then, I've been like extra sensitive to heat. And we had a brutal heat wave this last week. And I overdid it a little bit. And so now I'm slightly lightheaded still every day, and I have to really be careful to manage my exposure and to try to keep a positive attitude and realize that I'm I'm okay. I'm not going to die. I just need to slow things down, and everything's going to be okay. But just so you know, this is a real thing, I th I think. I don't think I'm making this up. I haven't been able to find anything online about, like, persistent or chronic heat stroke or heat sensitivity but i don't know i guess i'm pioneering a new uh, ailment and maybe i'll write a book about it you know how i overcame my struggle with heat stroke and it was all about coconut water and keeping a positive attitude and i don't know i haven't overcome it yet so I can't write the book, but I just want to let people know that the struggle is real and maybe we need to raise awareness around this and, you know, people need to be a little more tolerant about this. I think we should form a task force, don't you? Don't you think this warrants a task force, public, uh, you know, public awareness campaign? Let's get some nonprofits involved, shall we? Let's advocate for some people, shall we? Oh, boy. Well, I just do want to say one quick thing about COVID before we get into the interview. And that is that it's July, folks. It's the middle of July. And this thing has been circulating since at least December and probably earlier. There is a researcher. I'm trying to find this to put.
put it up, but there's a researcher that found had started doing testing of blood banks in the United States and find there's finding SARS-CoV-2 back in like September. Okay, so this has been around since then. This is now at least seven months in. We're still wearing masks. Do we really think that this virus in these seven months hasn't managed to get everywhere that it wants to get? Do we really think that seven months in, it is still sort of being held in check by us not interacting with each other? And that it's like, it's like frustrated and aggravated. Like, oh man, just why won't they just open up already? I want to get at the rest of those old people. Like, really, folks? Seven months in. Think about this virus, the most supposedly contagious thing ever. Do you really think that after all this time, it's still just hanging out in a few people's bodies, sort of biding its time, waiting for us to take our masks off when it's then going to pounce and explode and infect a bunch more and kill a bunch more people? I don't know. That concept just doesn't... (laughs) Does that make sense to you? Anyhow, there's just a little thought on COVID-19 for your morning or your afternoon or your evening poop, wherever you find yourself tuning in right now, listening to the Painting Pictures podcast. Thanks for being here. And I am putting up some show notes for this episode with Miles Roberts. Be sure to check them out. The website for the podcast is GabeRobertsArt.com. If you have any questions, send an email to GabeRoberts at gmail.com. Or you can send a piece of snail mail to Box 28, Craftsbury, Vermont, 05826. All right, my friends, without any further ado, please welcome the wise and talented Miles Roberts. Welcome back to the Painting Pictures Podcast. It's been a little while. Thank you, Gabriel. Nice to be here. Tell us a little bit about life on the farm. I just got a tour of your uh, plot out there. Mm-hmm. Got how much Yo. space is that you figure you have under cultivation? It's about 20,000 square feet, 200 by 100. Do you know what that is in acreage? It's less than an acre. It feels like like forty, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> feels like a lot of space. It is a lot of space. Got a lot of little plants out there. Mm-hmm. They're getting beat by the summer sun right now. Yeah, it's been dry and I think maybe unusually hot. Um, Pick you picked a hell of a year to start farming in Vermont. Yep. Yep. <laughs> little did I know. Yeah. It was going to be this way. You're not supposed to have to water. Right. Right. That's like a. That's not a constant 
concept for Vermont farmers. Generally don't build around irrigation, though I think it's happening more and more. I think that the trend is for drier summers, so more irrigation. Is that because of climate change, you think? It's hard to say, really. (laughs) I'm not sure. Um, But we've done a bit of bucket brigading out there just to keep things going and got a whole lot of corn and beans and potatoes and pretty much everything else. Yeah, and a hoop house Mm. to start things in. Yep, and it's full of tomatoes and peppers. We've got tomatoes strung up. They're about eye level now here in the beginning of July, and um, I should just be full of them soon. It's very exciting. And they're everything out there is from seeds that you guys started, right? Almost everything. Yeah, we, we picked up a couple of seedlings uh, or traded things with people, but um, mostly it's been th- thousands of seeds started. Going back to as early as uh, the beginning of March, I think, when we started our tomatoes and peppers. Were you guys here in beginning of March? No, we were um, we were in a tiny house. Oh, right. You, I remember you guys had started some tomatoes, right? Mm-hmm. We had the tiniest little seed starting <laughs> setup on our one uh, coffee table slash dining table slash secondary flat surface yeah and we had that covered with with little seed trays and lights and it felt summer felt a long time away still you know there's snow outside we were starting these right and now here we are and now all that stuff is gonna go through its whole life cycle in the next couple months really right right yeah, I think if we do it right, we can have some plants out there into October. In uh, the hoop house or out? Out, out, out the in the field, yeah. 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 We'll have um, pumpkins and winter squash. Even the dry beans might still be sitting out there drying. Right. Um, Maybe some potatoes still in the ground. Yep. But it is a pretty short growing season unless you have uh, some cover and sort of a, a heated hoop house situation. Yeah, but the plants know how to make the most of it. Yeah, and they seem to. You can almost hear them grow on a on a good day. Yeah. it's just uh, it's amazing. Um, so you haven't been in Vermont all that darn long. Did you uh, think that you would come out here and start growing a bunch of food? I mean, you didn't right away, obviously, but. Just tell our listeners a little bit about your Vermont uh, transition from California and what your overall impression of Vermont was and has become and how you adjusted to life in in rural Vermont. Yeah, just briefly, it was, uh, <laughs> it was really dry in California, and uh, I think we had had a, a record-setting drought. I don't know if it was 10 years long or eight years long or there was some really long drought. And uh, right. so coming out to Vermont, the first impression was just lushness and moisture and um, yeah. just the overwhelming green, the sense of, of life that's just like you just have to kind of weed, weed whack it to, to keep it from taking over. Yeah. Um, and and right it's it's a, a really intense environment in a lot of ways i think sacramento especially 
it's really easy to be um, kind of well preserved. You know, it's um, sort of low impact. Uh, the weather, the seasonality isn't very extreme. Yeah. Kind of like a couple, like two seasons, and it's like summer and sort of a spring fall. You only need one set of tires. <laughs> yeah. Right. Definitely. You need like a jacket. Oh yeah, maybe a raincoat. <laughs> you can do flip flops all year round, basically. Yeah, isn't that something? So yeah, to come out here where the the seasons they're very distinct. You know, four or five yeah. different seasons. They happen very quickly, um, and each one of them kind of seems like a lifetime in some way. Yeah. That sense in the middle of winter that you can't even imagine that things can grow. And then in the middle of summer to imagine just this quiet lifelessness uh, is is also unthinkable. I was emptying the compost last night and like using a pile of dry leaves to clean out the miscellaneous old things from the refrigerator that needed to go. And it's barefoot and just like pleasant dusk out. And I had the realization Oh my God, I do this in the winter too. <laughs> I do the same thing, but with like snow and in a full parka and heavy boots. Yeah. Gotta and have like your hat on. Dump it into a, and a headlamp on and dump it into like a, the pile of ice and snow that is our compost. That's right. <laughs> so weird. Well, and that's another thing is the, the day and night difference. You know, we're, we're just south of the 45th parallel up here. Um, Sacramento, I think, is somewhere in the high 30s, maybe. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the days in the summer, the longest days, you know, it's the sun sets at 9. It's light, you know, through most of the 9 o'clock hour. Wow. Um, but then in wintertime, at the deepest, darkest part of winter, it's dark, like, almost by 4 o'clock. Oh, my God. Would you say you're looking forward to winter? Not yet. <laughs> I, I, there was like a brief moment in the beginning of black fly season that yeah. I thought, oh, well, in winter, at least there won't be bugs. Yeah. But, um, but no, summer is too sweet, I think, to look forward to anything else. Yeah. So you came out here following a woman and mm-hmm. kind of threw yourself into life out here. Just tell people a little bit kind of how you made your way around and... Um, did some carpentry work and uh just how you how you managed to kind of get your feet under you and and establish something of a of a life for yourself here well it's it's been a process i my last job had been working for the california energy commission uh working on a big grant program and doing really doing that that nine to five office experience um, and then had sort of a uh, disillusionment um, a decision made it, decided I didn't want to go back to that kind of work but wasn't sure what I wanted to do and uh, coming out here uh, the first job was through you in fact I think you were planning to not come back <laughs> right. for the next summer <laughs> I said, <laughs> yep. you had an arrangement with this crazy person right to help him build this this enormous log house. Right. 
And uh, so I gave him a call and said that I was going to be a great carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he said, great. Yeah. Well, partly because he had seen you working and, yeah. and he had no question about work ethic. And Right. And he knew that we didn't or I didn't know enough to call him a complete crazy person with the shenanigans he was pulling. Mm-hmm. And he could just, yeah. Right, that's how it, that's how it began. <laughs> yeah, so I drove drove my old uh, station wagon over here, and that's been my carpentry vehicle. Right, a lot of times full of tools, and uh, taking me for pretty long commutes to go to a right. work site. Done it through uh, at least a winter, a couple winters of doing some cruising for work and um, being bundled up. Yes, we had some. We had a really cold winter working together. Um, yeah, you know, below zero days out siding and putting up tarps and trying oh to arrange propane heaters and oh my god, thaw things. <laughs> I, I oh my god, I, like just that. I had never. Um, I hadn't had a lot of experience with ice before coming yeah. out here, and now I feel like I know like what every different kind of tool does to ice, you know, how to best chip it, break it, mm-hmm. how to, you know, take down a set of scaffolding that's buried two, three oh. feet deep in ice at the bottom. Oh, yeah. I remember chipping out for a ladder on that when we were doing that siding and listening to some radio DJ complaining about Monday and it was like <laughs> six degrees out. And I was like, using my hammer to chip ice away to get a foothold for a ladder to climb up to some rickety-ass scaffolding. Uh-huh. I was like, what do you know about <laughs> tough Mondays, you asshole? <laughs> Sitting inside <laughs> yeah. a heated Drinking office. Drinking coffee. Mm-hmm. Well, that's... Um, I think that even within Vermont... Well, I guess generally there's a lot of rural areas and... But, like, I feel like you could have a life not so different from Sacramento, perhaps, if you lived in Burlington, for example. You could still, like, your car is going to go to shit. You're still going to need more clothes and winter tires. But there is still a big portion of people that live in a way, like, more similarly to, I feel like, the rest of the country in a way. Or what's not so different from Sacramento. The city life. It's, yeah, pretty similar. You have the same, you can go to Wild Wings or McDonald's or whatever right. and, you know, easy drive to the store. So, right, that's the other part is we've really been out in the rural parts of Vermont. Yeah. I was surprised to, to learn that um, the Sacramento metropolitan area, which is where we grew up, has twice as many people as the entire state of Vermont. Wow. To give a sense of the population density. I mean, Vermont's not huge, but it's a lot bigger than the Sacramento metropolitan area. Sure. Wow. I think it's the second lowest population density of all of the states. Behind Alaska? Uh, behind uh, Wyoming. Wyoming. Maybe, maybe it's just population and not density. I'm Good not old Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you don't think you're going to go back to... Uh, outdoor carpentry this winter 
I hope not. <laughs> I hope not too. Well, so that was this last winter was a was a real evolution of that theme. Uh, was you and I working together? Oh yeah. At Heartbeat Farm and building uh, a set of kitchen cabinets. That was sweet. Which was a heated, wonderful space. Was nice for the LED lights. Yep. Yep. Other than that, caused some headaches. Yep. But um, not too far to drive. Yep. It was heated and um, delightful. Basically, we had a microwave. Yeah. Yep. That was that was the way to do it for sure. Mm-hmm. Either that or just stoking a wood fire and, you know, not not working. Not doing it. <laughs> not, not leaving. Just say no. To leave in the house yeah. in the winter. I mean, certainly that's the way to get your car to last longer. Just don't expose it to salt. That's like, yeah, celibacy is the only true, the only sure form of birth control. Sure. Not driving in the winter. The only way to keep your car alive. Mm-hmm. Um, have you uh, like accepted the the mortality of your of your car? I feel like that was part of my um, sort of uh, initiation into Vermont was like accepting the fact that my car would die one day, and that like part of what I've had to learn is to just accept that like in winter things are going to get destroyed or like <laughs> you just you have to let things things are going to degrade mm-hmm. out here more than i was accustomed to i had a tendency to want to keep everything nice mm-hmm. i feel like part of like relaxing has been letting go of that a little bit well i'm i'm still planning to rejuvenate my car at some point so it hasn't quite been that sort of relaxing into it. Yeah. It's been just sort of like keeping a really good list somewhere inside <laughs> me of all yeah. the work that's ahead. Yeah. Every little piece that's going to have to be taken off and bead blasted and powder coated. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And then, right, it's also insurance is really inexpensive out here. And um, I think it looks pretty good to get a beater car for the winter yes then that's something that if you go into it from the right perspective like let's see how long this car can last right <laughs> then like you're just gonna be so pleased with yes. it yes you know every time it turns on it's like oh look at you every mile you go down the road without the undercarriage rotting out on totally. you it's like you're hanging together and doing me a solid yeah yeah that's a really good attitude i think appropriate for uh these just horrible pits that are called roads. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Well, right. And that's, I guess, the, that's the complication, is that the roads are so bad and the conditions are so intense that you you really, you kind of want a nice vehicle in the winter. You know, you want something that defrosts really quickly. Right. Something that's got great wipers. Mm-hmm. Something that heats well, has good traction. You know, it's handles true. bouncing off of snowbanks well, you know, all, all all sorts of things. That's why people just buy new cars every five years out here, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. We're leading the way on the disposable uh, vehicle yeah. concept. Yeah. But otherwise, uh, you like the way uh, Vermonters are sort of handling their business in in the modern world? 
That's a big jump, <laughs> I'd say. But sure. Otherwise, yeah, I I really enjoy being in Vermont. I, it's uh, it's full of people who choose to be here. Um, I think there's there's sort of an interesting thing. It's it's a place that's very you know recognizes outsiders because basically everybody who's here knows one another. And so when somebody new comes, it's like, oh, you're not from here, are you? <laughs> uh, and then, you know, they'll get started on that, oh, where are you from? And, oh, California, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and then it'll turn out that, you know, 15 years ago, they moved here from San Diego, <laughs> something <laughs> like that, or Connecticut right. or whatever. Um, so there's just, there's a little bit of that razzing that happens. Um, but I think that generally it's it's people choose to come here. I, I think... One problem that Vermont has is a lot of young people didn't make that choice. You know, they were born here and they're like, oh, I don't really like this sort of self-sufficiency kind of challenging life thing. Would rather, you know, go to the city and have 10 wild wings within driving distance or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, but the, the people who stay are people who really, who really like a lot of the same things I do. Um, so it's a good... Maybe the, the harshness selects for for good people uh, to some extent. Otherwise, there are certainly, there's a portion of the population that's trapped here or feels trapped here, um, is resentful of outsiders, but also wants to leave. Yeah. I, it's hard to find common ground with them because you can't say, oh, what a beautiful day. You know, right. Because they'll, they'll be grumping. You can't win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting mix. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about COVID nineteen, Miles. We've been skirting it for long enough. <laughs> let's get into it. Um, so we're now into July. This madness has been going on April, May, June, coming up on four months now. Wow. What's your general impression of what is actually taking place? in the world right now over these past few months and specifically how much of it is a uh some sort of virus that causes some sort of disease that's spreading around the world and the sort of unintended consequences of that um and then what else is going on besides just the uh the the response to that to that virus and the sort of unintended consequences. Well, yeah, I guess I don't put a whole lot of it on uh, a novel, dangerous virus. And that it seems to me that um, most of it has to do with what is being proposed and rolled out as the response to said novel dangerous virus which seems to be a number of experiments in expanding centralized control over people and governments um everything i guess uh and then um what sort of a winnowing out of people who uh are separating out of people who question basically uh, what they're told and people who don't question what they're told. Yeah, damn, that's 
that's a pretty apt summation. Uh, so would you, which category do you fall in? <laughs> Definitely people who question what they're told. I, even, even public health experts. Right. Yeah. I, to me, they don't, um, they, they sort of are in the same vein as economics experts and history experts and uh, cultural experts and all, all sorts of experts and that they're not, um, they're ba- basically as good as, as you pay them to be. And we're, we're not paying them basically. Um, somebody else is and they're, yeah, somebody else's experts. Right. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much how I see it too. Um, but that perspective is uh, sort of sort of unusual um, to sort of lump all those things together. We were talking about this a little bit, how um, we as a society seem to have a hard time making connections between things, and, and such connections are called conspiracy theories pretty quickly. Um, but like you and I both, when this first started happening, had the gut immediate (laughs) gut reaction of like, wow, this is not, I mean, I don't think for a second did we really, I don't know. I guess I remember hearing news reports about it. Like when we were driving up, when I was driving up to do the cabinets in the winter, like in December and January Mm -hmm. about it in this virus in China. Yep. And maybe I was still in, I feel like I had have gotten into a place around news of really just like flipping to NPR once in a while when I'm bored. Um, and it, cause it's the only freaking radio station that comes in mm-hmm. and otherwise not looking at it at all. And so I think I was still kind of in that mode when I was hearing about this fire. I didn't even, I didn't really think about it. Sure. Until it supposedly, well, it was it kind of crept along. I, I guess I'm trying to think of what the moment was when it felt, when I felt the uh, sort of the gut reaction of it being maybe it was the stay at home order. Um, but the feeling of it being not what it what we were told or not all about this virus. Somehow I got wind of it pretty early on. Um, But I guess I'm interested for us now to talk a little bit about that that perspective. And a lot of people call it cynical, where any major news event that comes along uh, is not what it seems on the surface or fits into some sort of agenda. And I think people have a really hard time uh, with that, or, or are hesitant to um, to make connections between things. Um, and so, let's try to maybe talk about how you got that perspective that makes you kind of question everything or particularly question large global events that have these wild uh, ramifications and uh, effects. 
Mm-hmm. So so let's go back to 9-11. Let's start there. And you and I were both in high school. And I remember I remember watching the news. And was it because dad was in the, at the airport and called us? Like, why did we... T- we never watched the news in the morning. But don't you remember watching the news in the living room with mom? Yeah, I think dad was... Dad was in an airport. And so he saw it on the TVs. He saw it happening on the TVs there. So we watched... The, the first part of it at home, right. And our dad was, you know, on a plane on the runway. Um, and then I think I remember watching the second part happen, or it was the next plane hit or something at school. Um, I think I was in, I don't know if it was, it was a history class. Uh, and the t- TV being rolled out and all of us watching it happen together, which was... Uh, was extreme. There's that, you know, that sense at that time of like, even the teachers don't know what's happening. Like, uh, you know, what is, what is this? This could be it. I remember feeling fired up. I remember that sense, like a war is starting. Yeah. Huge sort of foreboding. And that, that we had been attacked. Yes. And it was. And you would fight if you were called upon. Right. Right. For the U.S. military. Which at this point to me seems absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. It's been a long. That was a long way from there. Twenty years ago, I guess. Yeah. Um. So right. So that long way. So then from high school. I mean, I guess I don't remember the only like. I remember some people in our high school saying things like, first of all, nobody questioned at the at the at the moment. In the moment, nobody was questioning that these buildings were had explosives planted in their basements. Right. Certainly, nobody that you nobody and I we were knew. exposed to. But probably some people were. Sure. People... Because if that happened right now, that would be the first thing we we would watch the video of it and be like, "Wait a second. <laughs> yeah. Or we would just we would say, "Oh, well, next day you have a thousand page piece of legislation that supposedly was inspired by this event, right? Ready, all to, ready go, to go. All about limiting personal freedoms and expanding government powers and ushering a new era of police state in the yeah. United States. Uh, we would have seen the red flags in that for sure. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's part of. what happened what was different for us in this uh when covid happened is that we did have that broader perspective um and all of those things kind of happened at once yes you know it wasn't just like boy gosh something dangerous is here and here's how you can best prepare protect yourself it was it was no you know something dangerous is coming you guys need to be glued to the tv and listen to all the reports and the military's coming in. I mean, do we remember this still? Yeah. The military was in all major cities setting up, or I don't know, all a lot of major cities setting up triage areas, basically, right. tent hospitals. Right. Uh, on Sort of on the same day as that that uh, stay-at-home order stuff. It's, it seemed to all happen together. Yep. And, um, and bracing, so... Bracing for the overflow of victims yes right millions that were going to die just drop dead apparently yeah um yeah so it was a long a long path from the perspective in 2001 to the perspective now in 2020 yes and uh, 
I think for me, the, re- the real switch happened around the uh, Obama election and that I was, um, I, you know, really interested in the news. I was interested in reading both sides, trying to get a sense of, you know, the different perspectives that people had, how, how decision-making happened. And you had, did you have friends working in politics and stuff? Yeah, quite a lot, yeah. quite a lot. Um, in yeah. in the Sacramento uh, context, and then friends nationally or on the, the national government level, um, and then I I was I had just finished up an economics degree, and I was getting my own experience uh, with working in government, and um, I I had been towards the end of the economics coursework uh, I had become. Uh, disillusioned again with with economics with with like how it was taught and and how the systems were constructed and that it seemed to me the you know what we were seeing was this this growing inequality and um, this this huge gulf between haves and have-nots and the felt like that you know since from one perspective since the like a a heyday of uh, industry and prosperity in the United States following World War II, mm-hmm. that there had been this this hollowing out of the economy. And something that was hard to imagine had been done accidentally. Um, and something that was, yeah, dear, to, close to my heart or, or feelings. And uh, so when Obama was, was campaigning... Um, I took a lot of or put a lot of importance on what he talked about economically. I don't remember that at all. He did have some like a counter a counterpoint to to the way that that uh, the Bush regime had run the run the economy. Um, and then when he was elected, he uh, he brought on the the whole uh, Bush economics team. It was Larry Sum uh, Larry Summers and. Uh-huh. Um, a number of characters that I was just so shocked uh, could be brought on board. That obviously these were people that proposed this old, different style, this neoconservative uh, kind of economics. What was the neoconservative economics? The idea that tax cuts for the wealthy uh. would spur <laughs> economic development. Basically, that that's I mean, and and it's not you know it's still an idea. It's still that's, alive and well. Yes, right. <laughs> right, that these job creators just needed to have some relief so that oh, then they could turn man. their excess dollars into expanding the economy. Oh. And so, to yeah, to see that Jesus. this supposedly progressive person would, would just adopt the economic policies of his predecessor whole cloth made me realize that, well, a number of things. First of all, that, that politicians are liars, even ones that that have appealing lies. Um, and then the other is that the economic uh, system or policies aren't, they're, they're not really, uh, they don't go one way or another based on who's in office. And mm. um, that, the, yeah, economics isn't really controlled that way. Or the economy isn't really controlled that way. It has a lot more to do with, with, with big wealth and um, power. Yeah, and that happened 
after you had already gone through school. That would be 2008 that Obama got elected? Yep, and I graduated in 2007. Okay. Yeah, that's a big... That's a big one. Isn't it funny we weren't talking about this stuff? Like, you and I? I guess. I mean, I I think that I didn't have a concept that there was a lot we had to talk about. or Right. You know, it's, it seemed like all of these subjects were just different subjects. If you're an economist, you know this stuff. Or right. if you're a historian, you know this stuff. But there wasn't that sense that there's there's something immediate for us to understand and make uh, sense of and uh, respond to. Yeah. Um, so that put you in in sounds like pretty quickly a little bit disillusioned with the uh, the system you had gone through school with, learned about, and were maybe going to have a career in and then disillusioned with the whole political process Mm -hmm. kind of all happening in a short period of time. Well, and then also learning about the bureaucratic process, which, which uh, was enlightening for me and that it's, I think it's hard without having worked in a big bureaucracy. I think it's hard to imagine how it really works or, um, to me, I got a better sense of what the actual control structure was like within a bureaucracy and that I was supposedly doing analysis for a program that was data driven and that we were our, our overall goal was to reduce greenhouse gas emission, emissions in the state. And uh, we evaluated different uh, the efficacy of investment in different areas in reducing those emissions. You guys had grant funds to give out? We had $100 million a year for Damn. 10 years to give out for this, this effort. And uh, I was working uh, at the end of my time there on the investment plan, which was the year-long project of incorporating, making our own research, incorporating public input uh, and private input and determining the the allocation of funds for that year. And so we would we would, you know, start with data um, and then st- take input from shareholders uh, or stakeholders, I think we called them. Who would the stakeholders be? People that got grants? Uh, well, those were that's part of it. It's just the community. I mean, we were we were focused on the state at large. We had a number of investment plan meetings all throughout the state where people from the public could come and present their own ideas or input. Um, largely, I think people who mostly paid attention to the bro- program and interacted with it mm-hmm. were potential recipients of grant funding. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we came up with then a an allocation. Um, a splitting of that money and um, and then we're sending all these documents basically up the chain internally to be edited and worked into final form and what would happen in that process is a you know going up through 15 steps of editing you know just working on minutia of language and trying to make it fit a certain style and then at some point in editing you, you get a a response down that's like, well, we we need to focus on corn ethanol, which is something that didn't didn't come into our perspective. It didn't make sense from the data perspective, 
um, would only make sense because somebody who was invested in corn ethanol in this, in California uh, got somebody powerful's ear and said, Whoa. "Hey, we'd like some of that money." Wow. And so we did. Our investment plan included some millions of dollars of funding for corn ethanol, um, and we were required to, you know, basically asked to put our names to it and say, "This is your investment plan." Wow. Um, but it was something that you know didn't make sense in terms of how even how the the legislature had structured the thing, how the California Energy Commission had structured the 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 committee or the group to to apply this this process um, that somebody from outside could just say hey we we need some of this um, to me it was illuminating on how yeah. how politics works and then how bureaucracy works and that bureaucracy is a great way of covering something like that and that you can have that whole system our whole office full of people with ideas and taking input and all making this thing and then you can just slip things <laughs> in there because because there is there are very powerful ways of of power in in on the top of bureaucracy or even outside of it just having their way with with parts of it you just need to know the right person and incentivize them yeah um, and in this case it's probably somebody who was a big investor um, or, or supporter of Jerry Brown's governor campaign sure um, who got that that language changed wow dang dude i didn't that is a really interesting example and right then it comes out through this committee and it is so different on the surface it doesn't appear as though the governor is just handing a fistful of cash to one of his cronies. That's right. But it's, that's essentially what's happening. It's like laundering in yeah. a way. It it it's it yes, it provides like a some sort of a black box for those sort of commands to come in to produce something that 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 covers it basically. Yeah. So to bring it back to the the COVID-19 thing, it uh that perspective alone gives me uh makes me question or take with a grain of salt any sort of large report put out by a governmental agency or a non-governmental agency or a world governmental agency. Right. And that there's there's no way, you know, you can look at the people on the team, you can look at the state of objectives, you can look at the the introduction to their to their piece, but there's no way to really uh or it's very difficult, I think, to look at that and and determine what parts of that are the result of real research and what parts are um, politically motivated uh, inserts, basically. Yeah. yeah. And so your response was not to find, work your way to the top of the California Energy Commission so that you could straighten things out? Right. That's that's the other thing is that there's there's very little... Within the bureaucracy, there's nobody really that's more powerful than the governor. The governor sits on top, and the governor is elected by and beholden to the the most powerful, uh, wealthiest interests in the state, basically. Um, and so even if you were at the top, I mean, well, then the governor also appoints the top person at each agency. Um, so right, it seems like a very much a losing battle to try to work your way up. 
and and of course you you wouldn't i mean every step along the way up that chain generally requires you to uh sort of subvert your own internal personal opinions and and way of doing things um to to do what the person above you wants done and that's how you move up that chain is by doing those things for other people and you didn't want to do that i didn't want to do that (laughs) (laughs) yeah it wasn't worth it yeah yeah i'm glad um so that's a pretty that's a pretty good starting point and then um and then it seems like you you did a fair amount of uh of relearning history i remember you were always kind of a history buff like you studied world war ii read books about world war ii when you were a little boy Mm -hmm. um and then your uh your history study sort of changed when you became an adult and um yeah how yeah how did that go how did you find how did you find stuff that um resonated with you or like what threads did you start to follow well one of them that comes to mind uh was uh it's the secret history of the american empire i believe or of the united the states Zinn? howard zinn's book right i read that while i was in my last year or two at the energy commission and uh, or a people's history a people's it? history sure yeah. yes yeah and in that it was uh history told from a different perspective than i was used to or it was it were the same historical stories or same same um subject material yeah, but covered ones. covered from a really different perspective yeah um one which i've now outgrown i'd like to think but um one that was really helpful in that it 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 showed history as a sort of a conflict basically between the powerful uh which who are very few and the powerless who are very many um and and talked about just in the american context the history of that conflict and that it started you know from the very beginning with with um the you know the settlers versus the native americans um, and then each new immigrant group versus uh, you know, the, the previous immigrant groups. Um, it talked about the tactics of divide and conquer. Um, and, and it showed too, I guess it was, it was helpful in seeing how history, the way that I had learned history, had sort of sanitized out a lot of the actual um, meaning or, or content. And that, you know, I had learned a number of those things. I learned of some of the battles or mm-hmm. of riots or of mm-hmm. certain things, but didn't have a, a broader context that helped me understand it in terms of real people making decisions and doing real things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, yeah, it was a very helpful one in, in starting to have a different perspective. Yeah. All right, we're back. <clears throat> so, Miles, let's try, if you can, to trace the money 
in our society, in the banks. I mean, now I guess it seems like it's basically just made up. But there is a trail, or there is a consistency in um, banking interests that sort of bridges uh, countries and timelines and eras. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you hit me with it a while ago, just with a quick timeline. Maybe you can maybe you can share that with the listeners. Where you think? I mean, you could go. Obviously, people have tried to go way, 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 way back. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were talking about back in the day that the church was like the huge landowner or property owner at one point. Right. There's that there. So this was, yeah, following up with, with more history in terms of trying to understand it um, as something real that happened, as, as uh, something that's understandable even from our, um, our distance in time. And I think that normally we're given this sort of two-dimensional story of it, that upon closer examination turns out to actually be richer and, and um, more complex. Um, yeah, because it's always got threads from other things, right? Right. It's not just what's happening right now. Sure, right. Or even, you know, we're taught about in, in to look at it as different eras. You know, there, there was this, this period of time and then this yeah. period of time. Um, when really it's, it's helpful, I think, to look at, at wealth and power. And, and, you know, you can go back to, say, the Roman Empire, which is a perfectly fine starting point. Um, that that's, was very widespread and um, in some ways was the, the locus of um, th- this civilization that is now currently located here in the United States. Um, and that, that you know, we, we learn of like a fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, but if you actually look at, at the power uh, or, or at that civilization, there wasn't really a, it didn't fall, it didn't end. Um, you know, the Roman Empire moved. There was it moved from Rome to Byzantium. There was an Eastern Roman Empire, uh, which then became its own empire. You know, it, it some through some periods of transitions, there was the Austro-Hungarian Empire um, that was a uh, an offshoot of that. So uh, Rome, in a way, became the Catholic Church, hmm. um, and, and hmm. or or, or be, leveraged that. The power of that religion to to spread itself, yeah. um, and then there was a in the you know six starting maybe the 1600s or, or maybe before that there was a a period of um, taking over from the Catholic Church um, an enormous amount of wealth and power and land. Uh, one specific example is in the French Revolution. And that the the biggest sort of shift in change of hands of wealth that happened there was the Catholic Church um, was dispossessed of most of its holdings, or a huge amount of its holdings in that country, which wow. in today's terms would probably be billions of dollars of real estate or yeah. something like that. Um, that when we learn about the French Revolution, we're not that's not mentioned at all. No. You know, it, it, we talk about ideals of liberty or 
you know, uh, atrocities committed. We focus on beheadings. But in fact, there was this huge transfer of wealth from from one old system to a new system. And what was the new system? Well, the new system generally, I think, has been privatized banking, basically, um, since since that time. Um, wealth has been taken more and more from from churches or government governments or sort of large holders of wealth and put more into into private control. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can follow that wealth. You can an, another fun one is is looking at the British East India Company, which we were just checking out. Um, that that starting I think we saw in the 1600s uh, started making trips uh, sanctioned by the British government by the Crown trips to India uh, to set up trade routes. Um, and then before very long, they had... And doing battle with Portuguese Navy, right? Right, or the Dutch East India Company, or these other um, ventures, basically, were ventures uh, by the wealthy um, for in pursuit of immense wealth. Yeah. Like those were, were sort of fabled trade routes and, and, um, and then became centuries of profits. Basically, because they got built into the, they got built into the government. They got mandated, basically, and right. They so in the in the example of the British East India Company, they were given, I think, a mandate or some sort of a, a legal declaration from the Crown, from the Queen. I think it was the Queen of England at that time, um, to set up this formal arrangement in India, and they also they. Uh, got buy-in from the Mughal emperor of India at that time to set up a trade zone, basically. And um, eventually went on to to colonize, uh, maybe colonize isn't the right word, but to spread their control throughout a great part of the Indian subcontinent and had armies of hundreds of thousands of people, had ships, uh, fleets of hundreds of ships, um, were basically a, a something that was a quasi govern government, right. um, you know, a, a private army of some sort, right. um, all dedicated to private profit. Right, and right. They're if, not taking that back to the coffers of English people or something like that. Right. It, it is not sort of in some general way improving the welfare of of the English. It was making a fantastic amount of money for a very small number of people. I think, in, in fact, when most Jesus. of the stories of, of broader involvement with those companies were stock scandals, and that for a very certain group of people or certain periods of time, those uh, companies were paying out enormous returns on investment. I think we saw something like a 40% dividend for investors, um, which was something that was advertised and used to fuel these big speculative bubbles in those stocks, which then usually turned out to just fleece all of the average Joes who invested in them. Oh, my hoping. God. So, you know, an early version of, of what happens in our stock market these days. But then the fun thing about the, the interesting thing about the British East India Company is that that was still... Uh, a powerful force at the time of the founding of the United States, in that we had a uh, a public-private partnership, sort of um, corporate, global corporate entity, 
that was managing an entire continent, basically, uh, a a nation's worth of people um, ruling over them um, through propaganda and through divide and conquer and through coercion and force and uh, through um, incentivizing the very worst members of them paying off the the warlord in charge to to be allowed to have this predatory relationship um, and then that that money say from the British East India Company is always looking for the next profitable venture so that money went and and was involved in the slave trade for hundreds of years and that money went in and was involved in the founding of the United States one uh, really beautiful example of that is that the the first flag of the United States is almost an exact copy of the flag of the British East India Company at the time. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's the exact same thing. That was, they called it the Continental Colors? Or yes, the Continental Colors. Was the British East India Company flag. Um, so we have this idea that the United States was founded through fighting off our overbearing rulers of being the the English when in fact the uh, the common the common element here is this company that started in England and um, was involved so were they involved in in the actual like the ships taking people over and uh, actual colonization of 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 the United States. I'm I'm not exactly sure. I do know that that there were a number of wealthy, powerful, you know, early senators and um, statesmen and and um, big figures in the American Revolution were from related to uh-huh. British East British East India Company. Uh-huh. Well. Um, and and I guess right that point that that we think it was founded as some sort of a response that you know we wanted more freedom we wanted autonomy we didn't want to be right uh, it didn't really have anything to do with that I mean one good example is Benjamin Franklin who was from the British nobility who spent thirty or forty years of his life living in England at <laughs> the manors and palaces of his friends and relatives and yet is sold to us as some sort of anti-British. Um, American patriot. Yeah, I think a, a better way to look at the founding of the United States is that people who at that time were already involved in and in pursuit of monopolizing global trade looked at this immense piece of land so uh, thinly settled by people who had very little capacity to throw out invaders and they had the concept of, of of what exists now, in that it was a, 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 a you could put a make a country there that could dominate the east and the west, hmm. that you'd have trade from both coasts, hmm. that you would have the connection to the old world and you would have that connection to the new world in a way that, from a European perspective, they had dreamed of for a long time. Hmm. Sure. And then I, I think that you can look at the, the concepts of freedom and liberty and uh, all that is really sold to us as very good marketing. Right. 
public relations or propaganda, um, something that was a, a way of telling a story of what was being done that was very different than the actual intention. Yeah. I mean, for goodness sakes, uh, George Washington was the wealthiest person in the United States. It wasn't that he was, you know, some uh, the best general or the best looking or the best speaker or whatever. He was, he was the current, you know, the Bill Gates of that era or wow. whatever. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it's such a story of this beautiful, fresh start. It's almost like you imagine that America, you know, sprang up and through the the crops that they grew they then developed their own currency and like our money like started at that moment that we became a country and but now it's been uh money's money like you say goes back a lot further than that Mm -hmm. uh, to a much yeah much longer timeline and it's interesting to think about the you know think about the the discovery of the new world and all those natural resources and then you think about where things have gone since and it's been like okay then what we've got coffee and bananas and stuff in South America but there's no like there's not a lot of meat left on the bone as it were now there's oil it, like but what are the resources or the territories now that are left to um, to race to get to first or to get control over, there's not a lot left sort of in play. Well, yeah, less less here in the U.S. I, I think the sort of hot spot for that right now globally is Africa, mm. and and that um, you know there, I think modern technology or technology always. Um, Brings up a new new resources that that are needed. So like that that East India Company wealth that that became um, you know moved into the slave trade maybe and then uh, had a monopoly on sugar and then it became coal um, and then oil. I mean you can look at you. There's a very very uh, helpful or interesting story about the monopoly of oil in the United States and around the world and um yeah so that that money just just kind of moves smoothly through time basically mm-hmm. um changing changing form or changing the business that it's in but always making sure that what people need uh or that they have what people want or mm-hmm. that they can make people want what they're selling at, at the very least mm-hmm. so what's what's at play now like it's not necessarily about controlling trade routes or it almost doesn't feel like it's about making more money for the banks although there definitely has been a big set of shenanigans that have gone on with the financial system that I I think most people are completely unaware of we know that we just got hosed for six trillion or something like that right was that a, a a corona bailout? Isn't that what it was, or was it two trillion? And but altogether, I, I'm not sure where I'm getting that number from. I think altogether, when all, all is said and done, that's going to be the the number that is added to our balance sheet, basically. Wow. 
which what is that what does that mean that it, if the federal reserve is printing or creating this money to you know congress passes this spending bill mm-hmm. where does that money come from and what is that what does that even mean it's another it's that's another long story about about money yeah but, but it seems like it's more abstract now than it was absolutely. in those times when we're talking about spices or something like that. Well, right. I mean, we we are living in a time now of fiat money, which is money that is money because it's said to be money. Right. Uh, for a very, very long time. Because all the real money's gone. <laughs> right. Or, or what? I don't know. It's sitting in... I mean, yeah. right. There's no gold in the Federal Reserve anymore. No gold in Fort Knox. Right. You know, um... Which is it, in Maine, by the way. Did you know that? Fort Knox, really? I, we just drove through it. <laughs> Unless there's another Fort Knox. I always thought it was sort of central. I do. Like Indiana or something. We meant to look it up. We we're like, is that really Fort Knox? Huh. Right. That, that, so now it's just an abstract concept. Right. Right. Whereas uh, before it, it was it was thinking about the flows of gold and silver. Mm-hmm. You know, there were, there was actually uh, currency, and and there was a global trade in that, and there there has been for a long, long time. You know, thousands of years. There, there's talk about, uh, or I've read about, um, the impact that like Genghis Khan had on the global distribution of gold and silver. Um, it, the Chinese emperors have consistent uh, China and I think India consistently. Um, get gold that mm-hmm. the gold ends up there basically <laughs> um and and so those were the sorts of things i think that were very important back in those days of the east india company and yeah um there there was a, a there was a more real equation uh in terms of how much a government could spend how wars could be financed right um you know where that actual currency came from and and so it is totally different now. Yeah, I, th- I think you know now we're we're dealing more with like perception. You know, like this 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 setup that we have, where the United States can just keep making this money that it says is good for you know the same amount that it's always been. Um, it, it's basically because nobody else has called the bluff. Right. You know, certainly all of that money couldn't get repaid. All that debt, you know, that it couldn't get all repaid at once. Right. Um, it's all basically built on the assumption that, well, it's happening because it'll be able to continue happening. Yeah. Um, so, right. What what that specifically means where Congress passes this, um, it's 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 complex in that it's the government and they want... Um, that money has to come from somewhere. Like the Federal Reserve can create money, but the government has a has a uh, balance sheet. You know, has a has a budget to work with. Uh huh. Right. Um, so, so it becomes debt basically. Right. It becomes just straight debt, and it's financed by by issuing of bonds, which is a, a promise to pay back and, and and at some point in the future these debts. Yes. And and it can only be continued or paid back by the f- the continuance of this system, and then right. you know we'll pay it back by making more debt um, <laughs> to pay back the debt that we that that's due now. Did they talk about this in in econ? 
did they talk about the Federal Reserve? Do you remember? Not not a whole lot, or not not very helpfully. Yeah, you know, it was just sort of describing the function of it and saying, you know, this is how our our economic system works. Right. This is how all economic systems work. You know, this right. it wasn't like, you know, this was chosen from a basket of alternatives or these were the other <laughs> ideas. You know, this is just this is how money supply is regulated and this is how inflation is kept low and right. and all of those um, pieces of, of bullcrap. Yeah, it's a pretty wacky system. Mm-hmm. Right, fundamentally, and that, that was another one that was uh, that I really enjoyed learning about, or was eye-opening, um, is that the, the, the history of the Federal Reserve, or what it actually is, is basically a, a money cartel. The, the, the Congress and our government signed over our sovereign ability to create money mm. to a private cartel of the wealthiest banks in the most powerful banks in the nation and uh, that was that was over a hundred years ago now um, and and it started I, I don't think it's very difficult to draw a line connecting the f- passing of the Federal Reserve Act and the, the stepping of the United States into World War one and really the beginning of that 20th century of of nonstop global war basically um and ever escalating and and um increasing war mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot a lot that could be laid on the on the uh, at the feet of that organization and that decision that, that we made to to give our own ability to make money away to a private company well and then what so the fed was then financing the the military in that well, scenario, in the way that the Federal Reserve and the banks get paid interest on debt, right? So any spending then is is good is beneficial good for the banks sure. because they're making interest on it all, right? Plus, then their industries are enriched, you know, their their metal industries and oil industries and construction industries and wow, yeah, what a cushy. Uh, position to be in to get to make up get to create money and then charge interest on it yeah brilliant really is i don't know (laughs) one day i'm gonna come up with an idea that good and i'm gonna be a millionaire (laughs) yeah so what about now you haven't been how much news how much time do you spend reading the news these days or I mean, obviously, you don't get. Do you read any newspapers or anything, or how much time you spend online looking at stuff? Very little. I, I have been more intentional about it since um, this COVID stuff started happening. Just wanting to keep tabs on it a little bit. Yeah, or just, just to to know what's what's happening because out here in Vermont, it's you don't get a sense of it just going outside. Right. You know, you go outside and it's freaking beautiful. Dead people nowhere to be found. Yeah, right. No, it's it's just like full of life, and um, and so right, you have to really tune in to see. Oh gosh, no, it's still the end of the world. It's dire. It's getting worse. Dire. It's a scary time. It's get yeah. (laughs) I I was struck by it when I 
got back from our little vacation and checked back in. I hadn't read the news for a week and to see, um, well, it's interesting, right? There's talking about the record, record number of new cases in the United States of, of, of coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's funny is I realized that I found that news troubling, not because I was scared of a virus, but because I was scared of the response to the virus and the fact that the virus is being continues to be played up so much to justify a continued and like escalating response. And it's I'm scared of the response to the virus. I think just as almost just as much as somebody is who's really afraid of the actual virus, mm-hmm. which sucks. And I don't, I don't want to be. But do you f- feel that? Do you, are you, do you feel afraid of, of some of the responses that that seem to be coming down the, the, the chute? I no, I wouldn't say I feel afraid, or I maybe I work to not feel afraid. Um, I definitely that 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 is the the thing to fear is what what. Uh, what people will be convinced into doing you know i think at any point we look back in history and um the scary thing is is what is what people got propagandized into doing to one another or themselves and um i think that's Mm. concerning certainly um but i i see i see hope in it too and that i i think that the further we go walk towards this this 1984-esque world um i think that more and more people will will uh wake up or will open their eyes to it in a way that we started this by discussing how you and i uh opened our eyes um that more people will wake up and and realize that it's not worth being scared about these things we're told to be afraid of mm-hmm and that uh, life is really, really good right now and has the potential to get so much better. Mm-hmm. And um, that there are much more productive things to be engaged in than this collective fear program. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as... You mean like getting Biden elected, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> getting rid of Trump. That's not what I meant. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, right. I mean, all sorts of diversions. I I think it, you know, well, what I'm doing is, is growing food because I, I think that to me is is very close to the, the central uh, a part of the response and something that personally makes me feel really good and happy and secure and healthy um, and is is certainly learning new skills and and moving things forward. Mhm. Yeah, man. There's definitely that side to it that it the wackiness um is like amping up to to keep people keep people's attention, I feel like, but for the people that are losing interest uh at a certain point once you break away from it a little bit as the wackiness increases, it just becomes more obviously wacky. Yeah. 
and yeah, hopefully people can. I feel like there a lot of people are are caught right now in the the Trump trap, where they are. I don't think they're actually all that scared about the virus anymore. I just don't see how you could be after five months of being told there's a deadly virus out there and not seeing evidence of, you know, oh, shit, I went and hung out with them. And then and then I came home and I got really sick. And then and then I visited with grandma and grandma died like that's not happening to people. Mm hmm. I mean, people are dying that, you know, this is, I think, a real thing that is taking out sick people, basically, and unhealthy people that, that um, but, uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like many people have much actual experience with it. And so what they are most troubled by it seems a lot of people at least a lot of my peers seem to be most troubled by trump <laughs> and trump supporters mm -hmm. the crazy rednecks that don't listen to science and it's their fault that all these people are dying and the it's the republican governors that opened too soon because all they cared about was their bottom line and not protecting people. Mm -hmm. I feel like that has become the dominant narrative. And then you have the actual Trump supporters that are just like flipping everybody the bird and saying, this virus ain't shit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not defending Trump, but it's a wacky situation where that's what we're, it's like no one is actually thinking about the virus anymore trying to figure out who is actually dying from it or how we can protect ourselves and besides right it's become entirely a political issue yeah right yeah so how do people i don't know how do people step out of that i mean maybe it is going back and looking at looking at obama as a starting point or looking at bernie i mean maybe you know well, how about Bernie? You know, where does where does he fit in? That that he he fits in as well. That is what could happen if everybody got out and voted. What we could elect a Bernie? We could elect a Bernie, and then everything would be okay. Uh -huh. What what do you say to that? <laughs> <laughs> I I think that's also bullshit. I mean. I, I don't think, I think Bernie has said a lot of positive things, just like Obama said a lot of positive things. But I think what's important is what he hasn't said. I mean, we've been committed uh, since, really, that the founding of the Federal Reserve, um, a little bit before that with the Spanish-American War, when we really officially became an empire. But um, this country has been, has been committed to war in a way that since we signed... Gosh, what was it? The the pact to end all wars. There was a um, there was a pact signed in the 1930s when people were really sick of war, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and and you know had really focused on it. Like, gosh, we really shouldn't be bombing, blowing up, killing one another. Yeah. Like there are better ways to solve disputes. So all of the industrialized, all of the powerful nations in the world signed a pact saying we won't use war anymore. War is illegal. So since then, we've been doing illegal wars. Uh, 
right. uh, illegal by our own. Uh, I guess a, a signed treaty has constitutional power in the United States. So um, by going against this treaty, it, the, the, the leaders who have been doing that have been making unconstitutional moves, um, which they used to have to hide a little better. And now, you know, we don't even have to have pretext uh, for going in and, and leveling a, a, a country's industries or right. initiating a bombing campaign. That's not even war anymore. Um, but anyway, right. so for somebody like Bernie, who, who claims to, to be about the right things, to really have had very little to say about the American military-industrial complex, mm -hmm. to me is, is a red flag in that... Um, just like that concept of how you move up the ladder within a bureaucracy, you move up a political ladder basically by the same way, by making yourself beholden to uh, the powerful people above you and uh, by, by doing their work, basically. And I think that what one, of those, one of those strategies of control, like divide and conquer, uh, is controlling the opposition. And so having somebody like Bernie who can be out there and be a figurehead for all the people that want things to be better, that, that you know, look at it in an intelligent way and say, gosh, well, we could do this to make things better and we could do this to make things better. It's helpful to have somebody say, yeah, let's do all of those things. Come vote for me. And then, well, when it comes time for the election, actually, it's going to be Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden and I think it's, you know, it's, it's been pretty clear over the last couple of elections that that's, that's, been, that's been Bernie's uh, usefulness or his plan or something. Yeah. Do you think that uh, people just didn't turn out to vote for him? Um, you know, or do you think that, that the, the system's pretty well rigged to... Like even just the demo, the way the primaries work and the delegates and all that shit. Like, I think it's both. I mean, what is the? How many people do vote? What is the percentage? It's, it's pretty low. Yeah. It's like less than half, certainly. I think it's closer to thirty percent. Jesus. <laughs> I mean, it's not that low. It is really low. Yeah. So that was part of it, and um, and then part of it is is absolute, just straight up corruption. Yeah, I think I think that um, when was when did Ron Paul run for the Republican nomination? Like the the corruption that that was exposed during that was immense. Right. You know, you'd have districts of people who like counted their own votes and then went to see where those were tallied at the state level, and it's like there was just totally mistallied. Yeah. And not on not as an accident. Yeah. You know. Um, I think we've seen all sorts of stuff. The election of, of Bush over Gore was was clear election shenanigans and stuff that, that um, I think that if you look at logically doesn't really make sense. You're right. That was, that was, there was definitely some shenanigans there. Like Al Gore casting a definitive vote in the Senate as the tiebreaker, the vice president gets a tiebreaker vote voting against his own interest <laughs> as the presidential candidate. <laughs> Silly one. But he so, just knew, he knew what the people really wanted. And he's just being a good guy. He's just representing 
represent the American people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really we were interested in in waterboarding, <laughs> and in, you know whatever that was. Ten years of seeing people in orange jumpsuits and you know degrading photographs and um, secret torture centers. Oh my God! I mean, I, I think there's just there's I found in in having this new perspective on history and current events that it it almost it's it's too much to hold on to you know and i I recognize that people who who just sort of read the news or whatever this stuff moves away pretty quickly i mean when's the last time people thought about guantanamo bay right um but it's all still here and it's all still present and and it was important and it's it's um they're things that we should learn from um, and try to put together in a picture that makes sense yeah, that actually makes sense to us, because the the story as we're told it makes no sense. It really doesn't. It r- rarely does. Yeah, and it only makes sense if you don't think about. If you just don't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. If you think that that basically a lot of it was mistakes, and that oh everybody had good intentions, but in fact it turns out it just made the rich wealthier and and Darn oppressed it. the downtrodden. Yeah. Gosh, how does it keep turning out that way? Right. I think that's the, I think that's the key to it, really. I mean, you can. It gets harder and harder to to chalk things up to incompetency. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. This is not the same way. This has not been done by unintelligent people. Right. This is the, the, uh, and I, I think that was. That was part of it for that that awakening was like reading the the political stuff that's that has gotten pretty lowbrow, you know the the stated sort of perspectives or objectives or you know the even just the level of discussion between Democrat and Republican. You could look at that and say, oh well, our country is run by a bunch of idiots, right? You know, and and then you could say, well, okay, so no wonder we're up shit creek without a paddle <laughs> because of the these assholes have been steering us yeah but in fact they haven't right those those people aren't the people that that are coming up with this those aren't the people that are that are putting these things together those aren't the people that that faked the gulf of tonkin to start the vietnam war right um those people who did that were fairly clever yeah and i i think that we 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 underestimate the people who have been in charge and we have done so to our detriment um because they are pulling the wool over our eyes constantly yeah um and so of course right when something like this covid thing comes up the first thing is oh wow what are what's what's next what what are we doing here because it's not in at any point about the actual thing you know, the Vietnam War wasn't about communism. Right. Nine, uh, the war in Afghanistan wasn't about 9-11. Right. World War II wasn't about fascism. I mean, we can keep keep going on that way. but Yeah. Um, it's good stuff. I totally agree. And um, it's nice to have you lay it out a little bit. What... Um, what have you uh what have you seen in the 
in the news and such that um, that gives you any kind of uh, any kind of hope. Like what what are we gonna do? Do you feel like it's about people that are kind of aware, just turning their backs on things and um, and coming doing their own things and and finding each other some way somehow? Or do you see some need to combat like the censorship and uh, clean up, you know, get some better news sources out there and get some better science out there that's not funded by the pharmaceutical industry? Like, do you see those avenues as important right now? Or do you see it more important for us to kind of transcend that and... um, you know, maybe we don't even need an internet to, to connect with each other. And, um, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we get out of this? (laughs) Well, I don't, I don't generally look to the news for hope. Yeah. And that the news, um, whenever, however, uh, at times useful or truthful, it can be, um, the news is brought to you by the people who brought you slavery and the Cold War and um, propaganda. <laughs> um, and and it's when it comes down to it, uh, that's its primary function is is serving its owners basically. Which now you know you you can see the the consolidation of ownership has made it very clear how what a, what a small group that is. Uh, that's actually in charge of all of those mouthpieces. Um, so, uh, yes, I don't go to news for hope. I I do. Um, I watched a seed, a documentary about seeds, uh, which is uh, another conversation about um, a possible way that the world is is going to fall apart, or a way that it is in a number of ways ending already. Um, and I saw in there um, a number of examples of people who couldn't explain why they started it, but just started collecting seeds. And now there's a woman who uh, she told tells that it started. She she just had her living room full of like with three thousand jars of different types of beans, <laughs> and um, and now is is running this nonprofit seed library cool. that maintains tens of thousands of different varieties and uh, exchanges them. So you can you can request, oh, I'd like this type of bean. Whoa. They'll send you those seeds. You grow it and send a certain percentage of them Whoa. back to, to grow the library and keep the plants alive. Yes. Um, but those people were responding to an internal uh, trigger, um, something that that happened inside of them that, that inspired action that turns out to be perhaps, well, certainly in the case of those beans, species saving, but also <laughs> perhaps in, the term, in terms of us, species saving in that in in looking at a a whatever sort of however you want to view the future things are definitely changing i mean in the last hundred years we've lost just looking at at food crops like something like 95 percent of our variety and diversity um you know something that we're we're so uh we're what is we're fragile um we've we've developed a system that is like the opposite of stable Mm -hmm. 
Um, and these people are doing the opposite thing. Yes. And so examples like that yeah. give me hope and that I, I believe in people. Yeah. I, I believe that, that within all of us we have a piece of the puzzle. And, um, and so in terms of what response is the best, I, I have no idea. I, I think that, that communicating, um, that, that speaking our truth and uh, sharing that and trying to um, broaden our understanding are all really positive. But then whatever avenue it is that, that somebody that inspires somebody yeah. that, that, that takes on any piece of it is hopeful. Yeah, man. And it's, it's worth doing. Here, here. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Is there anything else you want to add for our listeners before we sign off? Hmm. Well, that 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 larger perspective, I guess, to to not not listen to the the rhetoric or the propaganda, and to try to understand what what somebody or something is really after, and and um, just to bring it to the context of the United States, rather than this country being about some ideal, um, some lofty, lovely ideal. Um, I think this country from the very beginning has been about profit and about finding new ways to control people and control this planet Earth of ours. And um, it's worth resisting, worth standing up to, worth, worth standing up for those ideals that all of us learned and, and believed in. Hell yeah. And, and They were so nice. Yeah. And, and saying that's, and- that's what we're here for. And I, we have the possibility to make it about that. Yeah. In our lifetimes, and that's exciting. Should we get one of those original American flags to fly? <laughs> no, I mean, that example of the East India Company flag makes me realize we need a new flag. Right. We need something that, that can can really be divorced from these symbols of the past. Yeah. Something that, that doesn't carry baggage uh, that, that we're not even aware of. And something that really sure. does represent our ideals and our hopes and, and our way of seeing the world. Yeah, man. Let's do it. Let's make a new flag. Thank you very much, Miles. Absolutely. Yes, a new flag. A new flag for our country, for our people. Wouldn't that be nice? Do take a look. Go to GabeRobertsArt.com and check out the show notes for this page. And do take a look at that. Uh, continental colors or Grand Union flag compared to the British East India Company flag. And it's very interesting that there's no mention of the British East India Company in the Wikipedia page about the continental colors. It's like, oh, it just came up with this flag based on nothing. And it's exactly the same. So that's an interesting avenue. If, there, if there's any of these things that you would like Miles and I to explore further, that's what the plan is now. We realized after recording that we really just need to do more of these podcasts. And it's kind of weird to like, it's like we have the same brain. So it's kind of this strange, like I feel like I'm trying to manufacture some sort of conversation because I feel like we don't, uh, we don't like, we share things with each other. Um, but like, I feel like a conversation is how how is is informative for for listeners to kind of 
see how views interact with one another. I think that makes things clearer. And um, it's it's kind of a funny like conversation for Miles and I to have because we think so alike. We sort of have the same brain. So anyhow, um, what I want to do next time with Miles is pick one of these things and kind of drill down into it and just just open it up and just like let all the different threads pop out and see see how they um, interact with where we're at right now. So send an email and, and let us know what you'd like to hear us talk more about. The email address for the podcast is GabeRoberts at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or wherever and leave us a review. Tell your friends, hide your friends, hide your wives, and keep it keep up the you know, the regular bowel, bowel movements and everything that you do in your day whether it's drinking coffee or not drinking coffee, clipping your toenails once a week or twice a week or once a month, you know, whatever you're doing, just keep it up. I think you're doing a great job. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, adios.